Praising your name through our, our worship time, praising your name through our, our message. Uh, thank you for this opportunity to have Megan teach with us today. Um, thank you for the message that you've put on her heart. However we got here today, whether it's our first time here or if somebody dragged us here or we walked in and we thought it was a comedy show, please, <laughs> please, God, help just get our hearts, minds, souls ready to hear the word that you have put in Megan's heart that is to be shared with, with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Count us off. Breaking the law, 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 breaking the law. more than a little bit good. There's no jealousy there. Do you want to say it's because we were prepared and talked ahead of time? No. Okay. Well. Breaking the law. Break. Al, that was my sec. I don't know. That was a that was a pretty good pretty good rendition of that song. Hi guys. Welcome. Thanks so much for being here today. So Joe was uh, traveling this week, I believe. Joe, where's little Joey? He loves it. Where's little Joey? You were, he was like a guest lecturer. Our pastor was invited to speak somewhere this week. I'm going to fall over this. Uh, was invited to speak somewhere this week, which is fantastic. And so he was up representing the gospel and representing Grace Life and all kinds of good stuff. And he just got back yesterday. And so he asked me to be here in this capacity today because it's a lot of work to get prepared for something like this. And then on top of it, you know, trying to deliver his very best and represent uh, Jesus Christ and the community of Grace Life well. I think up in North Carolina, right? Kind of. <laughs> you can say it. I can't. So I don't, uh, so I'm happy to be here today. I don't normally talk about my Monday through Friday job openly in public. And it's not because I do like anything like super top secret. It is like not even that exciting at all. Uh, I don't talk about it because I've learned the hard way. Uh, over the last eight or nine years, it's generally not in my best interest that, to advertise that I work for a large national bank. Uh, we have a lot of people uh, have very strong opinions about the bank and banking system and I learned not to talk about it because I used to travel all over the country for a living. And so inevitably when I would sit down and I would get all cozy next to my seat buddy and you know we talk, one of the questions that we talk to start to get to know somebody or we ask is, what do you do? Well, I do this. What do you do while you're traveling? Well, I work for Bank of. And, uh, then I would have to spend the rest of the flight, an hour if it was up to Charlotte, five hours if I was heading out to Seattle hearing about how great but generally how terrible the company I work for is. And so no offense, I don't care. I know it's good and I know it's bad. I'm both an employee and a customer. I'm just trying to watch the Hunger Games on my iPad. I don't need to hear <laughs> about your opinion of the company I work for. And so normally I don't talk about it, but today I will just a little bit because it... Um, it ties together to what we're talking about this morning. Essentially, what I do with the bank is make sure our sales associates in the small business space follow bank policy and procedure 
to make sure we don't get in trouble with the feds or state governments. And so the federal, the feds and the state, everybody has banking laws. And so what I do is make sure sales associates follow the rules. I'm a rule enforcer. And at times, unfortunately, it falls on me to be the chief rule enforcer. But sometimes I think to myself, well, it's really a great job for me because by nature, I'm a wonderful rule follower. I like the rules. Rules to me help me know if I'm doing great or if I'm heading in the wrong direction. It's a measuring stick for my performance. And so as I was preparing for this morning, I thought about my job and what I do every day because our passage today is all about following the rules. It's all about which rules matter and whose rules matter most. And when it comes to rule enforcement, who has the ultimate say? Is it the people who are like an enforcer like me, or is it the person who created the rules, who owns the rules? And so with that, we're in the book of Mark, breaking the law. See, now you get it. That's why we did that song. Uh-huh. Mark 2, chapter, 20, uh, Mark chapter 2, 23 through 28. One Sabbath, he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he, Jesus, said to them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need of food? He entered the house of God when Abiathar was high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and he gave some to his companions. Have you not read that? Then he, Jesus, said to them, the Sabbath was made for humankind, not humankind for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So at Grace Life, we look at a passage three ways. We look at the historical, historical application. What about man? What is he doing? What was going on at the time? And the history is really important for us to understand because now 2,000 some years later, some of the stuff that we read in our Bible, it is not going to make any sense to us at all. And so when we go through a historical context, it helps us to know why things happened and what was going on and then the later result. We talk about the theology, what about God, what was he doing, and then we talk about our devotional application, what about us, what does it mean for us however many thousand years later. And so what about man, what is he doing? Well, our scene unfolds today with Jesus and his guys, they are on the move. And while it doesn't tell us where he was going, uh, it says probably on the Sabbath and they were heading through the grain fields and his disciples start to eat. They, they need like a travel snack. I used to travel. I would often pack my travel snack bag before I would put my work laptop in my computer. But the Pharisees are there too. And Mark's tweets up there today. We don't know why the Pharisees were there. Maybe they were like all heading to the synagogue or maybe Mark thought they were being creepers. It's like the Greenfield creepers waiting to catch somebody doing something naughty waiting to catch Jesus doing something naughty, or again, there's like one road to and from the synagogue. And so the Pharisees are there too, and they say to Jesus, hey, your guys, they just broke the Sabbath law. They plucked grain. Well, it doesn't seem, so like I said, the historical application, however many thousand years later to us, I know a lot of lawbreakers. (laughs) Plucking a head of grain does not seem like it's a, a law that's been broken. So in order to understand what they were doing and how they could get an accusation of lawbreaking, that's pretty, that could be potentially condemning against them. 
We have to understand what the Jewish law says about the Sabbath. See, the Sabbath was supposed to be the day of rest. God created the Sabbath. God did after creation on the seventh day, God rested and he knew it was good. And so he then mandated the Sabbath for his people. Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy all tell us to honor the Sabbath. And, and it's really simple. When you read through all of the words, if you were going to boil it down, it's don't work, rest easy. Don't work, rest. But what was initially created out of God's, the Sabbath, initially created out of God's loving kindness towards us so we would make sure we took a break, it eventually got lost in all of the rules that were created around safeguarding the Sabbath. And here's how that happened. This is important to keep all of this together because as we go through Mark, we're going to talk a lot about law breaking. And so the Israelites, after they were released from their 70-year captivity in Babylon, they were bound and determined. They were never, ever, ever going to break God's law or break God's rule again. And so they, in addition to the Torah, which is the first several books of the Bible, it's God's law, they created their own laws, their oral laws, and it's called the Talmud and the Mishnah. And so as they were creating all of these extra rules to make sure they straight, stayed on the straight and narrow, never got away from God again, stayed in a relationship with him because following the rules keeps you in a relationship with someone. In the, in the addition of all the creation of these rules, they decided what was and wasn't work on the Sabbath. Well, what constitutes as work and what can we and can't we do? So where here, God's law says don't work, rest. The Talmud right underneath God's law, gave 39 rules about what constituted as work on Sabbath. 39. And then underneath there, this whole subspattering of other rules. And it is like beyond extra. It's super extra. For example, in case if you're wanting to go and climb a tree on a Sabbath, don't. Because in the process of climbing a tree on the Sabbath, you could break a leaf, twig, or a branch. And that would be considered reaping somehow and you would be a lawbreaker. Speaking of, uh, speaking of reaping, there's a whole lot about farming in regards to the Sabbath and Sabbath law too. So in a highly agrarian society, the majority of their Monday through Friday job was somehow related to working in the farm. But on the Sabbath, they were told to rest from anything that could have potentially, in the 39 or the underling 39s, do not work on the Sabbath on your farm. And that's where the disciples, that's where they got themselves into trouble. In the eyes of the Pharisees, just by plucking the head off that grain, they caught four Sabbath charges. They caught four charges up to four. Reaping, threshing, something called winnowing. I don't even know what that means. And potentially preparing food. I'm not kidding. To us, it seems super ridiculous, but in the eyes of very good and law-adhering and law-abiding Jews, lawbreakers. They're leveling an accusation at them of lawbreakers, but Jesus responds by doing what he always does. He tells a story, and this time it's not a parable. It's a story from their own scripture that he is deliberate and intentional with. It's a story about David, their most favorite king ever, and please notice how he starts. Have you never read 
That's intended to be a little bit of an ouch. Oh, Jesus, of course they've read. He knows they read. They had it memorized. In addition to reading it back then, they had to, the teachers of the law, because most of us did not read then, they had to have God's word memorized. So not only have they read it, he's saying, have you never read, come on, have you never read all this? And by starting that way, it's almost like he's employing the same methodology that he's using when he tells a parable. He's trying to get them to pay attention to something that they've either forgotten or dismissed or figured was sort of unimportant because they couldn't see it, even though it was right in front of their eyes. And the story that he tells, it can be found in 1 Samuel chapter 21. Don't worry, we're not going to read the whole thing because I know you guys have lunch reservations. But here's what happened in 1 Samuel 21, the story that Jesus tells. David has been anointed king, but Saul rejects the anointing. He rejects God. He refuses to give up his authority. Joe talked a little bit about this week. He refuses, and Saul is literally running around like a crazy person trying to kill David. And David and his guys are on the run, and they are exhausted, and they are hungry, and they set up their camp in a town called Nob, which was near Jerusalem. And in Nob, at the time, it's where the tabernacle, the house of God, was located, because the temple hadn't been built yet. And so David goes to the house of God, and he says to the priest, hey, I'm hungry, my guys are hungry, do you have any bread? I like that we always seem to talk about bread when I'm here. So, so he says, do you have any bread? And the priest says, well, I don't have any common bread, but I do have holy bread. And so real quick about this holy bread, where am I? Real quick about the holy bread, the tabernacle near the innermost part, there was a table that was called the table of the bread of the presence. And that table had on it 12 loaves of bread, but it wasn't eating bread. It was symbolic bread. It was show bread. I think Mark actually tweeted a little picture of show bread this week. It was show bread. It was symbolic. The 12 loaves were the 12 tribes of Israel. Aha, uh-huh. see how God's word goes together. The 12 tribes of Israel and to represent God's provision for them over the 40 years that they wandered through they wandered through the wilderness. And so David goes to the tabernacle and he's like, I need some bread. And the priest's like, I have some holy show bread. And being sympathetic to the needs of David and his guys, even though by law, you see it a little bit what Jesus says, by law, it's explicitly directed in Exodus and Leviticus. It's like the law that's up here. It's not fake news law that's down here. It's real law. It says only the priests are allowed to eat this bread. The priest is sympathetic to David. He sees that he's hungry. They see that he's in need, and he gives him the holy show bread to eat, which God must have been okay with. Because as you continue forward through scripture, you don't see, sorry, you don't see any, any sort of punishment, any, anything at all towards the priest, David, and his dudes for all of their part in lawbreaking. And they would have all been lawbreakers. And so why does Jesus tell this story? The Pharisees thought of David as their greatest king and the one they knew all of the Old Testament scriptures. They had it absolutely memorized in their head that the Messiah was going to come from David. And so Jesus, in this moment, using this story, is making a comparison between what just happened with him and his dudes and what happened with David and his dudes. And then he makes this massive proclamation. He makes a ruling. 
He rules, the Sabbath was made for humankind, not humankind for the Sabbath. And undoubtedly, the Pharisees were like about to come unglued. They were about to lose their stuff because who on earth was Jesus? Who is this vagabond fake teacher to compare himself to David and further make any sort of ruling on what is or is not lawful on the Sabbath? But Jesus tells him, he's the son of man. Jesus identifies himself as the son of man. The son of man is a title that Jesus uses when he refers to himself more often and more frequently than he refers, than he calls himself anything else. And it's a title that is meant to emphasize, which we have to learn this because we're gonna, we've already heard it in Mark, we're gonna hear it again, but it helps us connect the whole narrative of our Bibles together. The title Son of Man is meant to emphasize Jesus' humanity. It is meant to emphasize his, the humanness within his divinity. It is subtle. It is very soft. It's not this bold declaration, I'm the Son of God. I'm the Messiah. You should come and worship me. You should do this. No, it's quiet. And to some, it really wouldn't be offensive at all because who is not? Every single one of us in this room is the Son of Man right? It's, we, well, hi, we are. Jesus was too. He had like a mom and a dad. But to others who knew scriptures and had it memorized like the Pharisees, this would have been appalling. They would have been absolutely appalled because they would have known that the title son of man comes from the Old Testament book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter seven, where God gives Daniel a prophetic vision of what our ultimate spiritual reality is going to be. And we are going to read this this morning because I love it so much. It's short, though. It's only two chapters. I mean, verses. <laughs> oh, I just cracked my neck. All right. This is the vision that God gives Daniel. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion. That means authority dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So in this passage, the ancient of days is God. And I love that title for him, right? It lets us know really how much older and bigger, like we can't even comprehend God's time frame. It with him is the Ancient of Days. But so what does the Ancient of Days bestow upon our Son of Man? Well, he's given him the authority to rule in glory and a kingdom so that people of every nation and every language and every tongue should serve him. And that prophetic vision in the book of Daniel is now, at the minute Jesus left foot at right foot onto our planet, and now to this day, it is our absolute spiritual reality. And Paul affirms this in Philippians 2 when he says, let's see if this seems familiar, therefore at the name of Jesus, uh, therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The vision is now the reality that Jesus has the ultimate authority. And by virtue of his authority, he gets to declare what is and is not lawful, not only on the Sabbath, but every other day of the week. 
However, for today, we aren't talking about every other day of the week. We are talking specifically about a scene where our disciple brethren are a bunch of charge-catching lawbreakers on a Sabbath. And Jesus, the owner, the authority, the only opinion on the rule who matters, renders his verdict. Not guilty. Not guilty. See, what the Pharisees what they didn't consider when they called the disciples a bunch of lawbreakers is their human need. Like David and his men, they were also hungry. And when David was in need, it was therefore lawful for the priest to give him and his guys some holy showbread to eat rather than to let these men starve. Because according to God's real law, the one that's all the way up here, people will always be prioritized over religion. People would be prioritized over religion every single day, every, from the ancient times until the end of times. People will always be uh, prioritized over religion according to God's law. See, the Pharisees were so bent on upholding their rules that their rules then became more important than the big rule. Their rule subjugated God's rule, and in doing so, they became so outwardly focused on religious performance and then hurling condemning accusations at people that they forgot to take into account the whole of scripture. What does God's whole scripture say? That people matter. They had forgotten that. What started out in the Old Testament with really good intentions, how is it a bad intention to want to honor God and to obey and follow the things that he says? That's a great intention. Unfortunately, it morphed into petty religion that was more uh, concerned with rules and religious performance performance to the rules. But that is not so with Jesus, our son of man. Jesus, he came to reconcile us relationally with God. He came to make sure that we could get back into the relationship that God intended for us to have with him and for him to have with us. Jesus did not come. This is our Sunday sermon preview. Jesus did not come to make sure people were following the rules or to set up new rules or better rules or a new system or new programs. Jesus did not come to do that. He came to reconcile us relationally to a God who has a vast and deep love for his favorite creation. That would be us. He came to reconcile us to a God who loves us so much. One of his desires is to meet our needs and to tell us things that would be really good for us, like taking a Sabbath. The Sabbath is supposed to be good for us. It was for our benefit. God intended us to Sabbath so we could take a break from all of our efforts, our efforts to perform, our efforts to strive, our efforts to perform as husbands and wives and daughters and sons and employees, and church, good church people following the rules. The Sabbath was created for us to take a break and find peace in the sufficiency of God and what God has done for us relationally through Jesus Christ. That's the point of the Sabbath. Not guilty. Not guilty. All right, let's move on to our devotional, having the right priorities. You know, uh, we pick on the Pharisees a lot. We do. And it's easy to pick on them because over and over again, we see them just, uh, the nicest word I can come up with right now is jerks. We, that's pretty good for me. Everybody's laughing. Uh-huh. We see them being jerks. 
And it's easy to cast them in the role of the villain and point out just how bad those jerks are. Look at what they're doing. They did it wrong. But because we see their jerky behavior frequently and uh, repetitively all throughout the Gospels, we have to understand. It is not, it is not about, it's not to point out how bad they were. It's to teach us is something. It's to teach us something. Uh, so you see, the 21st century American church, the church in general, like not Grace Life, Joe would murder me. I'll never, I won't get to do anything again if I say Grace Life. But the church in general, like all of our cousin clans, everybody, like the royal church, so to speak, right? We are not much different. We are not much different from the Pharisees. We often take, uh, fail to take into account the whole of scripture, the whole story, the whole narrative from beginning to end and what's important to God and what God says matters most when we're dealing with people. And that people includes non-church fam and church fam. We forget to take into, it, uh, into account what God's whole word says. We pick out the parts of the Bible that we think are most important we're going to pick a little verse from here. We're going to grab a little verse from there. We might grab this whole chapter. And then we apply our own spin and then our own rules. And you know what that lets us do? That lets us point a finger at people and say, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. And I wish, oh, how I wish that the worst thing we did was point a finger at somebody and say, you're doing it wrong. There have been horrific things historically done in the name of Jesus after we tell people they're doing it wrong back then to this very day, to this very, very day, terrible things that have been done in the name of Jesus. And as a result, the result of that is we leave utter carnage and devastation in our wake. Lives ruined, lives lost, families destroyed. And then the rest of the world looks at our greater church fam, our church fam, Hypocrites, heartless. And then God takes the blame, which is really stinky and unfair to him, because we think we're helping him. We think that when we pick and choose and misapply scripture to hurt our fellow men, that we're helping him. And we are not helping him at all. We're working against him. And God's up in heaven going, have you never read? Have you never read? Our passage for this morning teaches us two things. It sets the record straight about Jesus. Now we know Jesus is the son of man and he has the ultimate authority forever and ever and ever. Thank God Jesus has relieved us of that burden to be the authority, to be the rule enforcer. Yes, not at the bank though. <laughs> We're gonna be the rule enforcer. He has the ultimate authority over the rules. That is his job. This passage lets us know it is his job. He owns the rules. God is the son of man, has given him that authority. He owns it. He holds it forever and ever. Amen. Thank God. The passage today is also for a, a caution for us to be mindful of falling, falling into the trap, really, of how a misdirected zeal for outward conformity to religious rules and expectations will derail us from what God wants for us and from our priorities, right? Because our priorities until we get them right, be a good rule follower and make sure others are good rule followers too. We gotta make sure everybody's a good rule follower. 
See, rules are good. Rules are great. I told you at the beginning, I love rules. I nine to five rules Monday through Friday. I'm also naturally wired, but being a good rule follower is never, ever, ever going to be what connects us relationally back to God. Ever going to be what connects us relationally back to God. Our relationship with Jesus should be our priority. Our relationship with Jesus should be our priority. Getting to know him, learning what's important to him, trusting him as our guide, learning to follow him, learning about his kingdom priorities, agents of his kingdom priorities of love and grace and mercy. Check this out. Restoration, reconciliation, relationships. Those are Jesus' kingdom priorities. And when our priority is our relationship with Jesus, our world changes and real transformation takes place. Real transformation in here. You are never going to get anybody to transform by trying to hold them to the rules. All you're going to do is make somebody really mad and run away from you. But real transformation takes place in here through following Jesus and by the power of God's redeeming love at work in our lives and heart. And then we become agents out into the world that needs us. The world doesn't need us to do this to them. They need us to be agents of love and grace and mercy to everybody. Good rule followers, non-good rule followers, people catching charges, people not catching charges, everybody. That's the priority of the kingdom. So I'm going to close with a question today, and I want you to think about it. No need to answer now. Um, If you had to survey all of your conversations, all of your dialogue, uh, Christian topic, all of your Christian conversations with church fam and non-church fam, how often are you either pointing out or thinking they're doing it wrong versus wanting to tell them the good news How often do we think that we're telling people, how often in your conversations you're doing it wrong versus let me tell you about Jesus, affirming them. Joe teaches us a lot about wanting to affirm the good work that we see in others. Question. That's it. Let's pray. Father God, uh, help our priority to be you. Help our priority to not be uh, one that looks and actively seeks to find fault and to condemn others when we think that they are doing it wrong or not the way that we would do it. Help us to um, look at others with the love and the grace and compassion that you look at them with, these, uh, with eyes that are welcoming and forgiving and loving. Eyes that look at others. Uh, because the reality, Jesus, if you looked at any of us and our sin and failure was what mattered most, how we do it wrong, we would all be doomed. We would all be doomed, but solely by your grace and your love and mercy and your desire to reconcile us back into the relationship that God wanted for us to have with him and him to have with us, you look at us with love and grace and mercy in your eyes and tenderness in your heart. Thank you for relieving us of the burden and of the priority of making sure we follow your rules and other people follow your rules. Thank you, God, that we can all gather together in this place today as one united church family. Help us to be, help our Grace Life community to be, uh, I don't want to say good kingdom agents. 
because it's not something that we can really measure, but help us to be uh, members of your kingdom that are following you, trusting you as our guide, knowing what matters most to you.